Well, it's a delight to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? I'm glad to see you tonight. God bless you. Thank you for coming back this evening. I want you to turn to the book of Philippians with me, if you would. And I was sort of reminiscing there as I was sitting there. You know, at our, our age, we reminisce a lot. And uh, I was reminiscing. This is the first afternoon service I've ever preached in at 5 o'clock. And uh, I can remember when my wife and I were dating, you know, back in the late 1800s, <laughs> when we were dating, our church at North Baptist Church started their Sunday evening service. We had traditional Sunday school morning preaching, but uh, their Sunday evening service started at quarter of eight at night. Quarter of eight. <clears throat> When I got here at Open Bible, uh, it started at 7 o'clock. <clears throat> I can remember the first time I proposed to the church here that we move the service from 7 to 6. And they weren't too enthusiastic about it, so I sat on it for about a year and then brought it up in a different manner, and we tried it out. The first Sunday night, it was, I said, all right, we're going to do it just for the summertime and see how it works. And if it works, if it's good for us, we'll move, continue it. <clears throat> the first Sunday night that we have it, we move it from 7 to 6. That Monday night, I'm preaching with one of the preachers that really was one of the greatest pastors in America in my lifetime, Dr. Lee Robertson, okay? And every fundamental preacher loved Dr. Robertson. I mean, when he pointed his finger at you, it was, it was you didn't quite know who he was pointing to, okay? <laughs> All right? But a great man of God, a man that walked by faith, a man that built a tremendous ministry. Now remember, that Sunday night, we've gone from seven to six. I preached first because I wasn't the headliner, obviously. <clears throat> and uh, so I preach. And after I preach, Dr. Robertson comes up. Well, I'll never forget Dr. Robertson. That was the first time I ever preached with him. And he leaned over to me and said, Now, Brother Riddell, that, that, that was good. That, that was good, Brother Riddell. That was good, Brother Riddell. And he was always an encourager. I mean, even if you weren't good, he'd tell you you were good. All right, okay. <laughs> so he's up there preaching. And he's preaching on the fundamentals of the faith. And he says, God says he changes not. He said, I'm concerned about these preachers. <laughs> and I'm listening. I'm concerned about these preachers that are moving their services from 7 to 6 o'clock. <laughs> he said, I have a concern about that. I don't think that's a good, and he goes on. Well, I'll tell you, I'm sitting there, and I'm doing what any normal preacher would do. I'm slinking down in the pew and trying to, you know, trying to get away from the direct shot. But what a great man of God, and the truth of the matter is, I think it's a nice time, 5 o'clock in the evening, to be quite honest with you. Uh, it's better than sitting around at a quarter of 8 waiting for service, I'll guarantee you that, all right? Not only that, you'd... Miss Wynn calls the heart. Uh, in, uh, 
In, first, in Philippians, before I start, let me just say this. I want to thank those of you that are responsible for the pulpit being back. This pulpit has meant a lot to me over the years. I had the joy of being able to preach from this pulpit many, many years. I had the joy of pastoring over there on Howard Drive. And let me just say something to you about the history. If you're new here to Open Bible, this truly is one of the great churches of New Jersey. And God has blessed it over the many, many years, and I thank the Lord for it. It was my privilege to pastor it for 43 years, and I say that, and I mean it. It was a privilege. They were wonderful people, and I thank the Lord for it. So thank you uh, for having this pulpit up there, and thank you for singing the old-time hymns. I'm going to be honest with you. That's what reverberates with me. That's what goes on in this heart of mine. I can sing them, and I'm sure many of you folks can sing them without even opening up the hymn book. You don't even have to open it up. And you just go on and just sing them. Thank you for singing them. And then thank you also for the kind birthday card, the gracious birthday card, and for the lovely uh, restaurant gift card so that my wife and I can go out and have a nice meal when we get through this mess that's going on here in America. Thank you so much for that. Would you stand with me and as we look at Philippians chapter 1? I want to talk to you this, morning, this evening about balancing your Christian life. Balancing your Christian life. And let's begin at verse number 19. Philippians 1, verse 19. You read silently and I will read aloud. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my, uh, fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I will not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you, with you all. Now, that phrase there, you all, that lets us know that he was from southern Jerusalem. <laughs> and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation be as becoming the gospel of Christ. That word conversation means conduct. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, or for his sake, excuse me, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. Father, bless this time around the word. Thank you for the service to this point. Lord, we pray that even now Christ will be lifted up and that all men will be drawn unto him. For we ask it in thy name. Amen and amen. Thank you. Maintaining a balance in your Christian life. You know, some people think that Christians are, 
crazy or certainly not totally in balance or to use a more modern phrase three french fries short of a full pack okay that's how people view christians many times former theologian a great theologian of yesterday aw tozer said it this way about christians how we're viewed a real christian is an odd number anyway he feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen talks every day to someone who can he cannot see expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another empties himself in order to be full admits he is wrong so he can be declared right goes down in order to get up is strongest when he is weakest richest when he is poorest and happiest when he feels worse he dies so he can live forsakes in order so he can have gives away so he can keep sees the invisible hears the inaudible and knows that which passeth knowledge that really is a christian <clears throat> let me just say some things about Philippians before I get into the message tonight. The date of the writing was probably about A.D. 64, about the same time he wrote, Paul wrote Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. The occasion of the writing, the purpose of his writing, was simply to thank these people for their continued support of him. And uh, you can find that in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 18. The key, the, the key scripture in this a particular book is found in Philippians 1.21 where he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, that is a revolutionary thought. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, what Paul is saying, if I'm going to live this life, I want to live it for one person. If I'm going to live this life, I want to live it for one reason. If I'm going to live this life, I want to, to live it so as to affect the lives of others with the gospel of Christ. And should I die, don't forget where he is, he's in prison. Should I die, I've gained. Now most of the world would look at you and say, well, if I die, it's all over. Hello? It has only begun. It's only begun. So the thought is a revolutionary thought because he's saying <clears throat> it's far better to be with Christ than it is to live in this life. In other words, what's he saying? I'm living with a higher purpose. I'm climbing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. I'm living for Christ and not for myself. The key thought <clears throat> of the book is the word joy and rejoice. Once again, remember where he's at. He's in jail. Nero could snap his life out without a question at any time he wanted to. But he's writing about joy. Well, preacher, how can you have joy in, in jail? How can you be rejoicing if you're in jail? How can you be rejoicing if, if a soldier's there with a sword ready to cut your head off? How can you be rejoicing? Because you're not living for this world. You're living for the next world. 
I find it rather interesting that Paul was under the control of Nero, but hear me and hear me well on this. He was not a prisoner of Nero. You cannot be a prisoner of two people at the same time. Paul writes in Ephesians 3.1, don't turn there, he says, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. He was a prisoner of Christ. He was under the control of Nero, but he was not a prisoner of Rome. He was a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 4 of that book, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you should walk worthy. Paul's experience, no matter what the difficulties were, no matter what the heartaches were, no matter what the trials were, was to rejoice. How do you do that? How do you rejoice when your health's deteriorating? How do you rejoice when your finances are diminishing? How do you rejoice when you may have a child that's rebelling in some way? How do you rejoice when maybe your husband or your wife isn't being faithful to you? How do you rejoice even in that? Because perfect peace have they whose mind is stayed on the Lord. Now, this was a good church. Church of Philippi, good church. There were, there were a few problems. First of all, if we would read in chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, we would see where Paul's enemies were hoping to pile on him. They were out there preaching this sort of thing, and uh, he was talking about their motives in verses 14 through 18. But then notice what he says in verse number 18. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense, I don't care if their motives aren't pure. Paul says, that's, their motives I will leave to the Lord to judge. He says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. I'm here in prison. My life can be taken from me at any moment. I realize that. But the truth of the matter is, my enemies are out there trying to add to my difficulties and my struggles, but I don't care. I am not going to judge their motives. Christ can judge their motives. I will rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ is being preached, and that's the goal. So his enemies were trying to add to his difficulties. So that's one of the issues. Another issue was over in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, we have two women fussing inside the church. So what else is new? No. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Just smile and laugh. It humors me. Okay? And so, you know, there were a couple of problems in the church, but no big deal. There were some problems, some, uh, some popular and very well-known prominent people. Lydia in Acts chapter 16 was a member of this church. The Philippian jailer and his family were members of this church. Look at verse number one of, uh, of this chapter with me, if you would. Verse number one, notice the structure of it, because this is important. Notice he says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Paul and Timotheus were servants. What what does he mean by that phrase, servants? What he means is, there is submission without civility. There is willing, loving, caring submission 
Paul and Timothy were willingly serving the Lord as bondservants of Jesus Christ. They did not look at slavery in the negative because that's really what he's talking about. But he was a bondservant or a slave, if you will, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, if we're going to be in bondage to anyone, let's be in bondage to Christ at every turn. Then notice with me what he says. To all the saints in Christ. The word saints is an interesting word because what it means is set apart ones. Those who have confessed Christ, those set apart ones. And then he says, and the bishops. The word bishop simply means overseer, superintendent, pastor or shepherd, and then deacons. And uh, that word simply means servant. Once again, let me drop back and refer to the history of this church here. This church over the years since 1949, since its inception, has always had Bible-believing bishops, if you will. Pastors, that's what we call them. We don't use the term bishop in this church, but nonetheless, they've always been Bible-believing men of God who preach the Word of God. And I can say this. We have been very fortunate over these many years to have good men serve as deacons in this church. And I believe you've got a good group of deacons even now in this church. And I thank the Lord for that. The theme of the book, and I'll get to my message in just a minute. The theme of the book is the Christian experience. Paul notes here, and you ought to write this down. The Christian experience is not controlled by that which is without. The Christian experience is controlled from within. So it doesn't make any difference what happens outside these four walls. It's what's happening in my heart and in my life that is the issue. That is the Christian experience. It doesn't make any difference if Wall Street's up or Wall Street's down. It doesn't make any difference if they're flying domestically or they're not flying domestically. It doesn't make any difference if uh, restaurants are open or restaurants are closed unless you can't cook, okay? Then probably would make a little bit of difference. Doesn't make any difference because that's not my Christian life. My Christian life is internal, not external. My Christian walk isn't dependent on what's happened down New Brooklyn Road. My Christian life isn't determined by what happens in Washington. My Christian life isn't determined what happens in the business world. My Christian life is totally, totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God and the work that he's doing in my heart. Paul had a single mind in this. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 13. Notice what it says there. Philippians 3.13. Paul had a single mindedness. Notice what he says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. The one thing that Paul wanted to do was get the spread of the gospel out, so much so that five times in chapter one, he talks about the gospel, talks about the gospel. Notice what he says in chapter two and verse number five. I appreciated that little chorus. Uh, I can't remember all the exact words, but let me be a sanctuary. That, that is good because that's exactly what Paul says here in Philippians 2, 5. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul emphasizes the mind. Here, the battle is won in the heart and in the mind of the Christian. Let this mind be in you. And what is that? Whatever Christ thought, whatever Christ spoke, that's what I believe. That's what I accept. That's what will control my life. And that's what he's saying. Folks, we need to fall more in love with the Lord Jesus and less in love with the world. We really do. We really do. I've seen over the years in, in ministry how the world has come into the church and how the church has receded from the world. We need to get back out there on the offense. So notice with me, if you would, how Paul writes here, and he talks about my mind and this sort of thing. My mind will control my life for Christ. My mind will help me determine if I have a successful Christian life or not, because my mind is going to determine if I absolutely trust this book emphatically. Can I say this? There is no book ever printed on earth in the history of mankind that has complete, absolutely unadulterated truth as this book, period. There are no contradictions in this book. I can remember my eighth grade science class. I hated it. Mr. Morgan was the teacher. Now, he was a nice guy. I don't like science. <clears throat> but I'm sure the textbook that we had, I'm sure if I brought it out today and put it out here and said, what do you think of all this knowledge that we have from a book that was, what, 60 years old or so, 65 years old? You look at it and say, it's obsolete. We know, we know there's, there's, some of these things aren't even true in here. Hello? You can never do that with this book. It's always true. It always will be true. I'm the Lord thy God, I change not. It's always true. So let's notice a couple of things. Notice with me Paul's salvation. Notice in verse number uh, 19 of chapter 1, Paul's salvation. Notice what he says there. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. He's talking about deliverance from prison. That's what he's talking about. Through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of the Lord of Jesus Christ. In other words, as you pray, God's going to deliver me. And then Paul's greatest desire, look at verse number 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, God help us from shaming the name of Christ. But with all boldness, as always so now also, Christ shall be magnified. That word magnified simply means to be enlarged in my body whether it be by life or by death. Paul's salvation, how's it going to come? It's going to come because they would be praying. It's going to come because the Spirit of God was going to move. It's going to come because God would have His will and way and not Nero. Paul's salvation, I know that it's going to happen that, uh, where he says, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that's going to happen. Paul wanted to have Christ magnified in his body. Was he? Yes. You can check it out. I'm not going there tonight because of time, 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 11. You can see how he was tested and tried, and yet he came through time and time again. But the main thing I want you to see in the next few moments is Paul's surrender. Paul's surrender. Not just his salvation. Paul was, we, don't, we don't know if Paul was in prison once or twice. We don't know that. He could have been in prison twice doesn't change the thrust of the book. 
if he was in prison twice. That's not the point. <clears throat> and God would deliver Paul. He would deliver even by getting him out of prison, Paul knew, or by taking him to heaven. For Why? Because for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I'm going to win, win, win. I cannot lose. Number two, Paul surrender. Look at verses 21 and following. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I will not. For I am in a strait. I have a struggle going on here. For I am in a strait between two, having a desire to, to depart. I want to be with Christ. I want to be with the Lord, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. I want to go back to verse number 21. And I want you to think about something for the next few moments. That phrase, for me to live is. How would you fill it in? How would you fill it in? For me to live. Sadly, for some Christians, if they were to fill that in, and if they were honest, they would have to say, for me to live is pleasure. That's what I live for. Pleasure. I want to do those things that are most enjoyable. Not that they're necessarily wrong. Not that, you know, not that they're, they're sin. I'm not saying that. But for me to live is pleasure. If they were to be honest. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Notice what it says in verse number 6. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse number 6. Notice what it says. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. Someone has said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Folks, whatever we do for Christ is all that we're going to take out into eternity. There is nothing else to take out into eternity. Everything that you and I have worked for, physically now I'm talking about, you and I are going to leave behind. I'm closer to heaven now than I've ever been. And I realize that these things in this world, at best, are temporal. The only thing that's going to amount to anything when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ is what I've done for him. God is not interested in how much money you've earned. He's not interested in how magnificent your home is. He could care less about how much money you leave to your kids so they can fight over it. He's not interested in that. He's not interested in the fact that you had a brand new car every year to drive. I'm not saying those things are wrong. Don't misunderstand me. 
what I'm saying is, how would you fill that in? For me to live is. Because the only thing that really counts is what we've done for Christ in this life. Let's go back to verse 21. For me to live is. For me to live is the approval of others. The approval of others. I must have others' approval for me to live. Turn to John chapter 5 with me, if you would. Look at John chapter 5. For me to live, to have satisfaction in this life, to have a thrill in this life, to have the blessings of this life, is to be able to have the approval of others. If you're living for the approval of others, and I don't care if you're 10, 15, 20, or 120, you're going to be mighty disappointed throughout life. Look at John 5, 44. How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? You know, the only approval that counts for all eternity are these words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Nothing else matters. Nothing matters. For me to live is pleasure. For me to live is the approval of others. For me to live. For me to live is my business. There is nothing wrong with being a businessman. And I admire those men that can start a business and work it. We just simply need to make sure businessmen or women that we keep it in balance. Would you fill it in? If you're a businessman here tonight or a business lady here tonight, would you say for me to live is my business? The more I make, the happier I become. Turn to Mark chapter 8 with me if you would. Mark chapter 8. Folks, There's nothing wrong with earning money. All of us, you can't live without it. But we need to make sure that we seek the kingdom of God first. And all these other things shall be added unto you. Look at Mark 8. Look at verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, if you spend 40 or 50 years working, building your business, and there's nothing wrong with that, and I'm not criticizing that, so please don't misunderstand what I'm saying tonight. What I'm saying is make sure 
that your priorities are in line and that your first love is not your business, but your first love is the Lord Jesus Christ, then your wife and your family. Because if you'll love Christ right, you'll love everybody else right, and you'll keep things in balance. For me to live is pleasure. For me to live is the approval of others. For me to live is my business. Teenager, let me speak to you for one minute or two. For me to live is my boyfriend or girlfriend. Don't remember 1 John chapter 5. So many times, teenagers, hear me kids, look, I'm glad for every teenager in here. Thank God for you. I love to be around teenagers. I really do. They keep you young. Okay? They keep you young. But many times, teenagers think of the here and now and not of what's going to happen in the future. When you're 15 and you're in love, let me assure you, it's probably not the marrying kind of love. Now, believe it or not, I was 15 at one time. I know you question that, okay? But in 1903, I was 15 years old, all right? I know what it is to be 15 years old, and so does every person in here who's past 15 years of age, okay? Many times, teenagers will make decisions that will literally affect the rest of their lives in the negative. I want to warn you tonight, you really only have one life to live. Make it count for all of eternity. Look there in 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. Keep yourself from idols. Sometimes that beautiful young girl or that handsome young fella, we get all wrapped up emotionally with them in their life. And sometimes... Teenagers make unwise, unhealthy, unholy, and sinful decisions that they will later regret in life. Now, you might say, well, preacher, how do you know that? Because I wish I had a dollar for every one I've dealt with back there in that office. Kids, let me tell you something right now. There is no substitute for purity, none, zero, nothing matches it, nothing matches it. There is no substitute for it. And I know that as you progress in your teen life, there's going to be the temptation for immorality. There will also be the temptation for alcohol. You know it and I know it. I'm not going to go into a lengthy story tonight because over the years I've told this story several times. When I was a senior in high school, I was wrestling on our wrestling team. And I was a stud then, just like I am now. <laughs> you know, 
I mean, once you're a stud, you're always a stud, and you will shake your head and say, amen. Yes, amen. All right. Three of my buddies, we were on the same wrestling team together. And I'd given my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't get saved. I got saved at eight. But I drifted away from the Lord as a teenager. And I had given my heart to the Lord between the summer of my, after my junior year and going into my senior year. And we were, this was in November, and my buddy said it was Friday night, and they were going out. This is a term these kids won't know, so mom and dad explain it to them later. We were going out cruising, okay, all right? Cruising. Yeah, one of them said, what's that? What's cruising, okay? <clears throat> what I'm simply saying, we were going to do that. And uh, they, I said, no, I'm not going to go there. Uh, I'm just, I just didn't feel like I ought to with these boys. Just didn't feel like it. And uh, to make a long story short, they did cruise. They got some alcohol. And they wrapped themselves around a huge, when I say huge oak tree, I mean a huge oak tree, right across the street from our elementary school. Two of them were killed instantly. One named Rennie Snyder, laid in the hospital for 30 to 45 days, if I'm recalling correctly, and then he died. What I'm saying to you, if I had gone out with him that night, I may not have drunk any. I probably wouldn't have. I know I wouldn't have. But I'd have been in the car. And I wouldn't be preaching tonight. And your pastor wouldn't be here. Because he'd have never been born. Select your friends well. If your friends don't elevate you spiritually, if your friends don't elevate you morally, if your friends don't elevate you academically, then you cut them off. You get rid of that friendship. That will not help you in life. I can remember out there in that foyer, sitting with a young girl that was in our Christian school at that time, a sweet girl, and I loved her just a tremendous kid, preacher's kid. And she was in tears. I came walking through the auditorium, and she was sitting, back in those days, we had a pew back there. <clears throat> and she was sitting on the pew crying. And I sat down to her, and I'll, I'll call her name Dorothy. Her name wasn't Dorothy, but I'll call her Dorothy. I said, Dorothy, what, what's wrong? And she was probably a junior in our high school at that time. And she said, Preacher, she said, I don't have any real friends here at Victory. And I said, Why? Now, I knew why. I said, Why? She said, I, I just can't get involved in the things that they're getting involved in. And I looked at her and I said, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. And I looked at her and I said, young lady, I'm going to tell you something. And I said, don't you forget this. God's got his hand on you. You don't need them out there. You don't need them to be your friend. I said, the Lord Jesus Christ loves you more than any of them will ever love you. And if you'll keep yourself pure, if you'll keep yourself right, God will use you greatly in his service. Today, a number of years later, more than I care to think about. She's been married to a preacher. 
They have several children. And I think she's a grandmom by now. Oh, what a horrible thought. Because I keep thinking of her as that teenager sitting out there. <laughs> All right. But what I'm saying to you is this. Teenager, you hear me and hear me well. You may have to say goodbye to some friends. Why? Because they're not good for you. Or they may lead you into an activity where you might not even see your 18th birthday. Be careful. Be careful. For me to live is my boyfriend or girlfriend. Let me give you one more, and then I'm going to close. I know my time is just about up. For me to live, and here's a temptation not only for teenagers, but for adults as well. For me to live is money. For me to live is pleasure. For me to live is the approval of others. For me to live is my business. For me to live is my boyfriend or girlfriend. For me to live is money. Notice what it says in verse number six here of First Timothy six. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Let me tell you what doesn't bring contentment. Money. Money doesn't bring contentment, kids. How do you know that, preacher? Because I've sat at the dinner table with multimillionaires and known they've been most unhappy people in the world. I can remember one woman years ago ahead of my office and her and her husband were struggling. Oh, they were millionaires plus, but they were struggling. And she was spending like there was no tomorrow. You know, I mean, her favorite word was the last word that George Custer ever uttered in this life. And that was the word charge. <laughs> and I looked at her. I said, young lady, this wasn't their only problem, so don't misunderstand me. Why do you spend so much money? Now, they had a beautiful home, drive new cars, travel all around the world, whatever. Here was her answer, and I've never forgotten it. If I can't have my husband, I'll have his money. Money doesn't make happiness. Kids don't ever equate money with happiness. Some of the poorest people I've known have been some of the happiest people I've known. Why? Because they have their priorities right. Money doesn't make happiness. You could be, you could be a millionaire tonight, a multimillionaire, and still be a very unhappy person. Let me give you one more, and I will be done. Turn to Luke chapter 9, please. Luke chapter 9. For me to live is pleasure. For me to live as approval of others, for me to live as my business, for me to live as my boyfriend or girlfriend, for me to live as money, for me to live is for myself. We live in a very self-centered generation. Me, myself, and I. Look at Luke 9 and look at verse 23. And he said unto them all, and that is the Lord Jesus, if any man will come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him deny himself. Many people today are living for themselves. And boy, have we seen that this week. What do you mean, preacher? Well, I don't know about you, but I've turned on the news. I've seen women fighting over food and this sort of thing in the grocery store. What do they think about themselves? Now, not that they shouldn't get something, but when you hoard it, that's wrong, folks. That's just literally wrong. I know of an individual where they, they buy bottled water, which is fine. I don't care. Buy bottled water all you want. I like to drink water that has all those carcinogens in it. Okay. <clears throat> and this individual would go in, pick up two cases, that's what the limit was, go back in, kept going in, picking up more and more cases of water. He never thought about his neighbor, never gave a thought about that elderly person that may need that water, never gave it a thought. It was just me. Have you ever? I, I, I don't do this. My wife does the Christmas shopping. Have you, have you ever gone Christmas shopping? And let me tell you something right now. It usually start, well, it starts even now before Thanksgiving night. But if you think I'm going to stand out at 2 o'clock in the, in the morning to get into Walmart at 5 o'clock in the morning so that I can buy a television at half price, you've got another thought coming. That ain't happening, okay? But have you ever seen how they push and shove and each one's grabbing, screaming, and carrying on and conducting themselves in such a way? It's unbelievable for me to live is myself. I don't care how you get along, as long as I get along. It's a pretty shallow lifestyle. Evaluate why you're living, what's your purpose, what's your goal in this life. Because your goal needs to be eternity. This life will soon be past. What's done for Christ is the only thing that will last.